This week at Hope Point. Each of us have come in this morning with much baggage, much weariness, much hopelessness in different ways. And all of us would raise our hand and say, this earthly life is a grueling marathon. It's not a sprint. The Christian life is hard. But by transfixing our eyes on eternal glory, we realize something amazing, that our temporal sufferings and pain have a shelf life. They will come to an end. Our miseries in this body. So here it is. What does looking forward to eternal glory, what does that do for the believer? And the answer is that it gives us the fuel to live fully alive for God right now. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Hope Point Church. While sitting in a dark prison cell beneath the streets of Rome, with his wrists and ankles bound by chains, the Apostle Paul was sustained by two great realities. Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we could be unchained from the grip of sin. And now that he has risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit speaks in all places at all times. Spiritual forces in the world will always seek to silence truth, but the Word of God cannot be chained. Be encouraged, friend. Jesus is with you, and He is using your suffering to advance His gospel throughout the earth. Let's go to Dan now as he speaks to us from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, Jenny and I have four children at home. Please pray for us. Um, we have a one-year-old, a two-year-old, I'm going to keep going, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. So in our household, in the Vunksness household, um, Coffee and Jesus are a necessity. Not in that order, of course, but coffee is, goes everywhere with us. I feel like whether it's in a diaper bag or a backpack, we have a cup of coffee with us. Uh, I can't tell you how many times our toddlers have spilled our coffee. One thing we enjoy doing is going to the local uh, coffee roaster here in town and getting a fresh bag of ground coffee and just, and just opening that up and just ah, smelling that aroma that just hits your nose. And I'm a little bit of a coffee uh, geek, coffee snob maybe, not as much a snob, but more of the geek level. But I love looking at the bottom of a coffee bag and it has the tasting notes that describe the flavor of the coffee that I'm about to drink. And one of those that I picked up the other day said, intense with a rich, deep flavor and notes of caramelized sugar and chocolate. Who said their coffee this morning? All right. Feel free to get a refill after this. Now, if I was to assign tasting notes to the letter of 2 Timothy to describe the flavor and the aroma of this letter, I would describe it in this way. Deeply affectionate, with notes of endurance, notes of joy and courage, bursting with an overwhelming aroma of hope. The letter of 2 Timothy was by far the Apostle Paul's most affectionate and personal letter that he had ever penned. He is writing to strengthen the faith of his young friend in the faith, young Timothy, who he considered his spiritual son, fellow missionary, fellow co-worker of the gospel. And Timothy, like, like many of us today, we, we can be prone to fear and timidity. And if there's anything that Timothy needed most in the hour in which this letter was penned, it was courage. Timothy's mission 
and objectives were clear and vital for the progress of the church. His mission was to secure the church in Ephesus. He's the pastor there. There was a beachhead for the gospel that had been established there by the Apostle Paul, and Timothy was entrusted to be the general, the commander, to advance the gospel into Asia Minor. Who would like that job? <laughs> I'm content being a youth pastor. Um, but Timothy was in a pressure cooker. From outside of the church, he was facing extreme persecution. He couldn't escape it. From inside of the church walls, he was facing ravenous false teachers who were seeking to destroy him and corrupt his ministry. Timothy, like many of us today, was weary. He needed much encouragement and boldness if he was going to endure his earthly life and ministry. Now, the Apostle Paul knew this. He knew the plight of young Timothy, his young friend, and he wanted to strengthen him one more time. But ironically, as Paul is writing this letter of encouragement to the church, he finds himself in the most discouraging situation you can possibly imagine. Now, Richard always encourages me, you need to explain the tone of the passage. If you miss the tone, you miss the text. I want to explain what is going on here to really add to the flavor of this letter. Paul's not writing this from uh, a, a nice air-conditioned Starbucks in Rome, sipping on a latte. He is writing this underneath the Roman square in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, just think about this, and it's easy to look past some of these details, but the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen and may ever will see, found himself shackled in the dark dungeon. He's, he's the captain of the team. He's the coach of the early church, and he's in a prison in Rome. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, who's in control? The evil emperor Nero, maybe you, you remember studying about him in school. He was extending horrific persecution to the early church. The gladiator games, different things. Paul found himself in the middle of this tension, in the middle of this chaos. Not only that, but winter, winter is coming. He's cold. He's hungry. He's all alone. His friends have conveniently left him. Sounds familiar of another story that we know. The only person with him is Luke at his side. This is the second time Paul was in prison. The first time was under a house arrest. They just said, you know, kind of play by the rules. You'll be all right. We'll let you write a little bit, this, that, and the other. And Paul, with his... Uh, with his intellect and was able to kind of wiggle his way out of the imprisonment using his Roman citizenship, kind of here's my card, out of prison card. But this, this time is different. This time Paul knows he is not getting out of prison. At the end of this letter, he tells the church, he says, for my time of departure has come. Now Paul knows that the next time his eyes will see the light of day, 
will be as he's escorted out in chains by guards to his place of execution. He could hear the knock on the door from the guards in 30 minutes. It might be an hour. It might be a day from now. He doesn't know, but he does know this, that his life is imminently coming to a close. Paul knows how the Romans do things. He knows the method. There's no guessing it. He knows the method of his execution. A cold Roman blade will sever his head from his body. And although Paul knows his death is on its way, he wants to write one more letter to the church to strengthen Timothy, to see that young Timothy finishes this race well, to see that we here at Hope Point finish the race well. These are the last words the Apostle Paul will ever write on this side of eternity. No ink is wasted in this letter. No time is spent on frivolous things. As I was studying this, I, I, wanted, I, I wanted to scoot my chair up closer to my study desk to hear these, these last words. And in these last words, Paul is going to give us four motivations for bold endurance. And oh, how relevant these are to us today in the 21st century. As we go through, I want you to think of yourself now as Timothy, hearing these dying words from a dying man. What's Paul's first motivation? How's he, how's he gonna stir up young Timothy? None other than the person of Christ. This is a head scratcher. <laughs> Why in the world? He knows what Timothy's going through. Why in the world would Paul not give him something, and for us, something more practical? I mean, give me a little book, five steps to get out of my life, right? Five, five, you know, 10 ways to, you know, work on my fear. Five, but Paul knows that no self-help book is going to work. That can stay on the shelves in goodwill, right? He needs something deeper. The church needs something deeper It says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the ultimate motivation that we have at our disposal as believers to endure suffering is to remember the ultimate sufferer. The way of endurance in this difficult Christian journey is to remember the one who endured the most. The way of faithfulness for the believer in this life is to, again, remember the faithful one who was the most faithful. The motivation for ministry. What gets you going? What's the fuel? The motivation is to remember the Messiah. Now, the Greek word here, remember, now, I had to, I, I'm not a Greek scholar here. I had to get this from my brother who's in seminary. So he said, this one's for free. I guess I'll give you this one. Um, but he said that the word remember is a verb, act, an active Greek verb that means to call to mind continually. And it's also a command. It's a gentle command, but it is a command for us as believers 
to not just dwell on Christ in the past. Man, he was a great guy back then. You know, I think of Jesus here and now when life gets hard and the going gets rough. No, this is a call to bring to mind the very person of Christ to overwhelm our minds and will ultimately overwhelm our heart affections. Now, Paul knew, like Timothy, that we as the church, we are prone to forgetfulness. Paul Tripp says often, we have gospel amnesia. We forget the truths of the gospel. We forget the person of Christ. We forget the power of Christ. We forget the very captain of our salvation. So we need to see from this text that the, the greatest catalyst, the ammo, the, the fuel to keep us enduring in this life, to not give up. And maybe some of you came here this morning, I'm ready to just throw in the towel on this Christianity thing. Ready, to, ready, I'm done. The greatest fuel is that we, again, would transfix our eyes upon Christ and to remember him again. Richard reminded the staff this week, he, he knew I was uh, preaching on this text, and he reminded the staff, and he said, there, there's nothing more that the enemy wants than to get us to forget the person of Christ, to take our mind off of him. If he can do that, he wins a tremendous victory. Not only that, but if, if, if the enemy can get us to disbelieve the true Jesus of the Bible and believe in a false Jesus that we hold to, he has won a decisive victory. And if we, in our minds, hold to a false view of Christ, how in the world are we able to endure and be motivated by Christ? We live in a culture where we are inundated with lies of who Jesus is, who he was. Everybody has a platform now on YouTube. This is who I think he was. This is who you think he should be. It's as if there's just all these caricatures, like a, like a bad caricature sketch at Six Flags, right? Emphasizing parts of Jesus they like, but diminishing other parts of Christ. Jeff Dodge, in his book, Titus, Truth-Changing, Life-Changing Truth in a World of Lies, outlines several different types, false views of Christ that are very relevant in our time today. And maybe some of you today tend to hold on to one of these views of a false Jesus. There's the motivational speaker, Jesus. He presents easy tips for a good life, a good comfortable life. He bids you, come follow me, hassle-free living. The gospel is all about you. It's all about you feeling a little bit better, having a little bit more self-esteem, but it's not a gospel of repentance and sacrificial living. There's the vending machine Jesus, you know, in that creepy part of the apartment, it's down there. You put in enough payment, press the right buttons, and he might give you what you want, but the buyer is in control of this Jesus. And what you get is more important than the giver himself. There's the church statue, Jesus, that many hold to. Old, dusty, a relic of the past. I remember him from Sunday school. A relic of the bygone area. You know, this Jesus, he's, he's interesting to look back on, but at the end of the day, just no, no relevance in my life now. 
There's the disguised as Moses Jesus, who is often seen carrying stone tablets of law than a redemptive cross of love and grace. This is the Jesus who always has a scowl upon his face. I'm disappointed with you again. You messed up again. How dare you? There's the coloring page Jesus. Flat, lifeless, two-dimensional. I, I remember the stories from Sunday school, but this Jesus just, it doesn't, it's never came off the page. It always stays in the Bible. Never felt alive. My question for us this morning is, do you truly know Jesus? Do you? Do you know the true Jesus of the Bible? Your life depends upon it. Young people may be sitting with mom and dad. Do you truly know Christ? Teenager, college student, navigating this difficult scene, <laughs> this difficult culture, do you truly know Jesus Christ today? Churchgoer of 20, 30, 40, 50 years, do, do you truly know Christ? Your life depends on it. When you think of Jesus, does it conjure up images of a Savior who's always looking down at you with a scowl, lifeless, powerless? Let me ask you this. Does the Jesus you hold on to actually compel you? Is he worth dying for? Is he even worth living for? And my prayer as I was putting together this sermon this morning is that if you don't know Christ, you would see him for who he truly is. He's beautiful. He's everything. Your life depends on it to truly know Christ. As we call to mind the person of Christ, now Paul does something amazing. He directs our attention to the greatest history in the greatest event in the history of the world, which showcased the power of Christ. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. <laughs> he's, he's reminding us today that, man, Jesus is not in a tomb rotting away somewhere in Jerusalem. He's alive. He is with us. He is here. And Paul, and just to get the flavor again of this passage, he's, he's saying, I'm awaiting beheading, but Jesus is with me in the cell. Timothy, I know what you're going through. Man, keep going, man. Keep grinding. Keep, keep fighting. Don't give up. Jesus is with you. And it's a call for the church, us today, sitting at O Point whatever you're going through. Some of you probably came in here with a tremendous amount of baggage or guilt wanting to give up. Jesus is with you this morning. And how's that possible? Because of the resurrection, right? Should get us to jump for joy. He's risen. And this changes everything. And this rewired the brain of the apostle Paul because he knew the power of the resurrection. Because later he tells us, 
earlier, he tells us that we too have the power of the resurrection in our lives. And Paul asked the question that maybe some of us have asked, what if the resurrection never happened? He tells us, he tells the church in Corinth, he said, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have hope for Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. That is sad news. But the fact is, he said, that Christ Jesus is raised. This changes everything. And as if this is not enough fuel to get, I mean, I could stop the sermon right now. The band could come up, right? I mean, this is, this is glorious news. And as if this isn't enough motivation to keep on enduring, Paul says this, he's also descended from David. He's descended from David. Fast forward in Revelation, Jesus said of himself in Revelation 22, he said, I am the root of David and I am the descendant of David. I am the root of David. I, before David was, I am. That's my deity. I've always existed. And I'm a descendant of David. I'm, I'm, I was born in a manger, born in the flesh, my humanity. Jesus is saying, I, I'm, Paul's saying, Jesus is fully God, fully man. And sometimes we get it twisted a little bit that we think that God's redemptive plan of history began in, in Bethlehem. But it began all the way back, all the way back in Genesis. All of Scripture, all the Old Testament was pointing us towards the Messiah, pointing us towards the Messiah who would come and ransom and redeem his people. Here now we have the true and the better David. And Paul ties it all up nicely. He said, this is my gospel. All of this, this is my gospel. If anybody ever approaches you in a coffee shop and asks you, hey, what's the gospel? They did that to me once and my knees were shaking and I'm like, I should know this. I should have a better answer, right? Man, this should just be, if you need a little ammunition, what's the gospel? Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That is good news. And it was this news that so compelled the Apostle Paul, it so changed his life that he says something here very startling in verse 9. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Paul is willing to be chained like a criminal for Christ. This message that he preached was so scandalous, so costly. And sometimes we forget that, that the, mess, the gospel is free, but it's not cheap. If you've been following what's been happening in Afghanistan, people are going door to door, knocking, and if a believer is found with a gospel app on their phone, they are executed. This is a costly, costly message. And Paul is saying, hey, here's my name, criminal for Christ. He was willing to be counted among the wicked men like his savior was on Calvary between two 
criminals. And Paul knew that Jesus is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. The person of Christ so convicted Paul, he was willing to die a criminal's death. The reality of the resurrection so captured Paul that he was willing to experience intense suffering for him. The carpenter from Nazareth so compelled Paul that he could tell us today, tell the church, whole point in 2021, that if Jesus suffered, we can suffer too. That's the fuel. That's the motivation. But Paul's not finished. He gives us the second motivation for bold endurance, the power of the word. He says, I'm suffering like a criminal chained, but God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained. Paul is contrasting his own physical chains with the unstoppable, unleashing power and freedom of the word of God. In essence, he's saying, I'm chained. And you can imagine him writing these words, the chains are clinking. I'm chained, but God's word is not chained. Man, I'm bound up, but God's word is not bound up. I'm imprisoned, but God's word, the gospel is not imprisoned. So Paul's encouragement for us today, for the church, he's saying, don't lose heart. The power of the word is unstoppable. It's unchained. Continue to preach the word. Continue to apply the word. Children's workers during these services continue to give our little ones the word of God. Parents, keep going. Keep giving your kids the word of God. And I'm just going to raise my hand and say, that's a challenge for me. In the workplace, continue to live out the word of God. It's powerful. It's alive. It's living. It has the power to transform lives. I'll never forget sitting in a Romans Bible study here at Hope Point when my wife and I were first married. And it was through the word of God that my wife came to salvation. Hearing the gospel and she said, I've never, I think I've been to see, I've never believed. This is the first time. Like, I'm saved. I'll, I'll never forget her, she, just this weight on her. And I just remember her saying, I'm saved. Like, my sins are gone. The word of God is powerful. And the flavor of this, he's just telling, he's telling Timothy, not even Emperor Nero can stop the word of God. He will be dead. <laughs> Not even he, the most powerful man in the world, can stop the word from seeping into the streets of Rome. Under the streets of Rome, at one time, there were 600 miles of catacombs. A catacomb is like a, a type of underground cemetery these were all hand dug by Christians during the early church. 
over the course of 300 years, archaeologists believe that there were over 4 million Christians that would have either been buried in these catacombs or would meet secretly in this underground cave to study God's word. Archaeologists made a startling discovery. They found on some of these catacomb walls carved into stone was the inscription that read, the word of God is not bound. (laughs) The psalmist writes this, his word runs swiftly. Love that. The writer of Hebrews emboldens us, for the word of God is living, it's active, It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Man, just unleash it. (laughs) Pull the sword out. It it has the power to pierce soul and division. It even discerns the thoughts of the heart. Peter facing intense suffering, who he himself wanted to be crucified upside down for his Messiah, he tells the church this, you have been born again not of perishable seed that's just going to die out, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Isaiah, the prophet of old, proclaimed this in the wilderness, the grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of God stands forever. I had the opportunity uh, this past week to go to a pastor's conference in Charlotte, there were 300 pastors that crammed into this small church. And we got to sit under the lectures of a church historian who has written several biographies on many of the heroes of the faith, many of the reformers uh, during the persecution of the Church of England. And some of these stories, y'all, I can't even really get them out of my mind. These men and women who believe this stuff who believed in the power of the word of God. One man that he talked about was William Tyndale. We've all heard the last name, Tyndale translations. In the 1500s, these gloomy storm clouds of spiritual darkness were just hovering over Europe. The knowledge of the Bible had all but vanished. The only Bibles at that time for English-speaking people were in the language Latin. And the average man and woman, child, could not understand the Word of God. And that was on purpose, to keep people from knowing the truth of the Bible. To translate the Bible into English from Latin during this time was a crime punishable by death. Just think of that. But this didn't stop William Tyndale, who made it his aim to see that the word of God would not be chained, that it would truly stand forever. He famously said this in opposition to the Church of England and the opposition to the Pope. He said, I will make it my aim that every plowboy in every field in Europe will know more scripture than the Pope. This cost him. He was hated for that. It cost him greatly. Tyndale now had to be on the run. For 12 years, he was a fugitive, hiding, writing when he could, under candlelight. Everybody was after him. His crime, translating the word of God into English. Someone who he thought was a friend actually betrayed him. 
they bound him up and they escorted him abruptly to the town square and began tying him up and getting the torches ready. And he knew what was going to happen. And John Fox, who wrote the Fox's Book of Martyrs, said that his last dying words before he was executed, he said, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Not long after that, he was strangled to death by an iron chain, beaten. His corpse was burned. And to make sure that his memory would be forgotten forever, they covered his corpse in gunpowder and they blew him up. All because he believed that the word of God is not chained. John Bunyan was another man like that who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest selling books of all time, an uneducated sixth grade education who was a tinker. He went around and fixed things as a trade, but the word of God so got into his soul, he couldn't stop preaching. Men said of Bunyan, if you cut his arm open, the Bible pours out of it. He was a walking Bible. And for this, he was hated. He spent 12 years in the Bedford jail in England for preaching the word of God. The jailers even befriended him and they said, just stop preaching the word. Like, like just stop, just promise us you'll stop. We'll even leave the door unlocked, just stop. And he looked at them and said, I would rather, moss will grow on my eyelids before I stop preaching the word of God. The secular philosopher Voltaire, the French philosopher said, in a hundred years, the Bible will be buried and will be forgotten. Little did he know that the Bible would bury him. 30 years after Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his home and started printing Bibles <laughs> and translating gospel tracts. The word of God stands forever. It cannot be chained. And that should spur us onward towards endurance. The third motivation that Paul gives us now is the purpose of the work. The purpose of the work. Tells us in verse 10, therefore, Richard was clear. Make sure you explain the therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, in light of everything that has been said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the church, the called out ones, the souls, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. If y'all were to just look under the hood of the Apostle Paul, man, just what, what's revving his engine? What, what gets this guy going? What wakes him up in the morning? And the answer is this, his love for souls, the urgency for souls. Instead of wallowing in self-pity like I would have done, I'm chained, I'm about to be beheaded. Like a rocket, Paul, Paul just shoots up out, out of the horizon. He, he's just, he's, I mean, he's just up above the chains and above the prison, taking his eyes off himself and looking to others and saying, in effect, there's work to be done. There are souls at stake. Time is running out. This is the greatest call that a man could ever have. I, I, I'm willing to endure all things for the sake of them. And I almost picture like Paul, like a, like a coach of the church, 
pulling his team to the side, you know, the early church, and just saying, guys, listen, this isn't a scrimmage. Some of y'all are playing like a scrimmage. This is the championship game. This isn't the first half. Guys, this is the fourth quarter. It's fourth and inches. Look around. The, the stadium is packed. The lights are on. Let's get the ball in the end zone. <laughs> let's get to work. Let's, let's get off the sidelines. And like all of us, it, it, and I almost picture myself, Paul talking almost to me through these pages, it's almost like Paul is looking at us, the church, as we have our heads bent over, we're weary, we're tired, and he's saying, lift your head up. I know you're tired. I know you're banged up, but your pain is worth it. The pain is worth it. Go play this last play like it's the last play of your life. This is the urgency of this letter. And this was Paul's last play. And he's calling us to join in. Are we men and women of the fourth quarter? Are we living in light of eternity? Is Paul's battle cry to get the gospel out there, is it our battle cry that we would endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain salvation in Christ? This is the purpose of the work. Don't lose heart. Keep going. This is the mission for which each of us have been saved and the mission by which the church has been designed. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, Paul concludes with one final motivation for bold endurance. And to fully grasp this, we must take our eyes off the present and now gaze towards the future. The last Motivation is the promise of eternal glory. Paul has shown us the motivation of the person of Christ, the power of the word, the purpose of the work. Now we gaze ahead, church, towards the end of our earthly race and look at the promise of eternal glory. Salvation in Christ and with it, don't miss this part, and with it comes eternal glory. The ultimate outcome of our salvation is this, eternal glory. Our ultimate prize is Jesus himself forever in all of eternity. Ephesians 2 tells us that in the coming ages, God will show his immeasurable riches and kindness towards us in Christ and will spend eternity pouring and lavishing more grace, more kindness upon us, his church. And our ultimate goal for which we were designed will fully come to realization to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Each of us have come in this morning with much baggage, much weariness, much hopelessness in different ways. And all of us would raise our hand and say, this earthly life is a grueling marathon. It's not a sprint. The Christian life it's hard. But by transfixing our eyes on eternal glory, we realize something amazing, that our temporal sufferings and pain have a shelf life. They will come to an end. 
our miseries in this body that's always being decaying. Our miseries will be vanished. So here it is. What does looking forward to eternal glory, what does that do for the believer? What does that do for us? And the answer is that it gives us the fuel to live fully alive for God right now. Right now, in this moment, in our life. I was reminded of that this week. The most powerful, um, most fully alive person that I know is my brother, Jeremy. And as I was preaching my sermon, he didn't know I was preaching. And he sent me a text message that I want to read you guys. But before I read it, you have to know a little bit about who Jeremy was. Jeremy is my brother. And we were involved in a horrific car accident 12 years ago. And Jeremy pronounced dead at the scene, told by doctors that he would never get through the night. But he sustained a horrible brain injury, which has left him a quadriplegic, paralyzed. Jeremy sits in a diaper during his day. He's bound to a chair, bound to a bed, and is at the mercy of family to take care of his every need. But when you go in his room, there's one thing the accident didn't take from him, and it was his joy. Big beaming smile comes on his face when you come in his room. And he spelled this message out. And for us, it's super easy to send a text. But for him, he can only move his left arm. It bumps a switch on his, on his wheelchair, which is connected to a screen. And he can type out letters, A, B, C, D, and punch it for a letter he wants. It's a very long process. So whenever I get a message from Jeremy, this has taken a long time. His message, which I think is a message for us. <laughs> Please share the gospel with any non-believers that you meet. Be brave in faith. It's coming from a guy who's in a wheelchair, encouraging me, encouraging us to be brave in the faith. If Jeremy could do it, he would. I often wonder, what would, if he could get out of the wheelchair one day, what would he do? He's talking to people about Jesus. He's spreading the joy. He told me one time, he said, Dan, I'm, I'm glad I was the one that was in the wreck and got injured more than you. But you have a mission. I have a mission. Jeremy lives in light of eternity. Sometimes we get messages that are hard to read. I am ready to go home. Ready to go to heaven. I'm ready to be with Jesus. Now for his brother, that's sad, but we should be rejoicing because that's what we all should look forward to. Better to be there with our heavenly father than in this broken down vessel. 
Jeremy reminds us that this earth is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. And we don't have long in this earth. And because of this promise of eternal glory, one day Jeremy will stand before Jesus, look at him face to face, and Jesus is going to say, Jeremy, rise up out of your wheelchair. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And I also believe he's going to say, all right, now let's race. All right, who's going to win? <laughs> Maybe I can dream a little bit. May that be the words that we hear on that final day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have finished the race well. So for those of you in closing here who do not know Christ, who are not saved, remember Jesus Christ. Flee to him. Cling to his feet. He's not going to stiff arm you away. Man, you've rejected me for third. No, he's going to embrace you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For those here who have sinned greatly this week, remember Jesus Christ, who is ready to pour out forgiveness and lavish you with his mercy. For the doubter and the skeptic here who just say, man, I just, the Christianity thing doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't, I'm just not sure about this thing. Remember Jesus Christ who offers you his nail-scarred hands as evidence of his love, like Thomas. For the married couple who thinks, man, there's just no more hope. Remember Jesus Christ. For the parent who feels, man, I have nothing less left to give. Remember Jesus Christ. For the student who sees the world so attractive and alluring, remember Jesus Christ, he's better. For those with anxious minds and restless hearts, remember Jesus Christ. And lastly, for those here who are just plain weary. It's been a hard year for many of us. Remember Jesus Christ who invites you, who invites you and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember Jesus Christ. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.